0: Hi and welcome to the podcast you're having tea with Alice this week's episode is with Melissa Phoebos, who is a, a memoirist and an artist and a teacher and has just So much to say. I I really enjoyed having this conversation. We talked about creativity, self-exposure, the right to talk about other people and how you uh, present them in your work, and a little bit about her incredibly interesting backstory. So I hope uh, you enjoy listening to that podcast as much as I enjoyed having the conversation. Uh, If you enjoy Tea with Alice, of course, please uh, share it with friends and people who you think might enjoy it. And it is supported by Patreon, patreon.com slash Alice Fraser. That's a one-stop shop for all of my stand-up specials, podcasts, blogs. And I also do weekly salons and weekly writer's meetings. If you'd like to write with me, we do a weekly workshop and a writer's meeting and a weekly book club. So there's a lot there at patreon.com slash Alice Fraser. You can start at like a dollar a month and you get access to almost everything with a dollar a month. And then you can see if you want to do more uh, there. I, I feel weird plugging it, but I have promised myself that I will be doing more plugging uh, at the beginnings of the shows not not more uh, time wise but more emphatic so uh, prepare yourselves for that Uh, this is also now available uh, as video if you are a Patreon subscriber you can find the video of this conversation that I had with Melissa Phoebos by going to the Patreon and finding the link there so that's all I have to say I I will be doing Edinburgh in August I'm doing gigs up and down the country in the UK if you want to find that that's alicefraser.com my website has all of my gigs listed there and I'll talk to you again next week you're having tea with Alice hello welcome to the podcast you're having tea with Alice who are you and what are you drinking I'm Melissa Phoebos. um
1: and I am drinking uh, this is so embarrassing. I didn't I wasn't expecting to have to tell you, but I' I'm, I'm a bad liar so I'm drinking decaf instant coffee in my Nicola Walker mug that a friend made for me because I'm a super
0: fan. So. That is beautiful. Why do you why did you choose instant decaf coffee? This is not Um, a judgmental space, by the way. I'm a a tea fan, not a tea snob.
1: No, I can tell. It's a curious space. Um, Because I took a nap very recently on the couch with my dog, who is basically like a living endorsement of naps. And when (laughs) I woke up, I thought, um, I'm not going to be very interesting if it wasn't so late. In the evening, I would drink a coffee, and so I'm tricking my consciousness into believing ah, that I'm drinking So you're coffee, having a placebo actually, coffee. That's right. I'm having a placebo coffee so that um, I can be witty for you.
0: Uh, that's a really magnificent idea. It's okay. You don't have to be witty. It's not compulsory. Um, do you generally have instant coffee? Is that is that a go-to? I know some people have a preference for instant coffee because it has a particular... yeah
1: I'm really just lazy I mean if I could muster the energy to care enough I would probably make a nice I would grind I have good coffee beans in my freezer and I would grind them and do like a nice pour over which is what I used to do for a long time Um, but I guess I just don't care very much because I like Nest Cafe. I just make it so sweet. It doesn't really matter what kind of coffee it
0: is. See, now, I don't drink coffee, but the only coffee I've ever been able to really drink was when we were in Burma as kids, um, Myanmar now, but then Burma. Mm. And uh, for breakfast, they would have this stuff called 3-in-1, which is one-third <laughs> instant coffee powder, one-third milk powder, one-third sugar. And See? just the perfect breakfast drink, I have to That's say. That's
1: basically what I drink. And I actually order – I have a, a – a, strange taste for powdered creamer, which is like a distinctly sort of U.S. kind of poison. I think it's outlawed in a lot of other places because it's basically <laughs> powdered plastic. So what I do is I found like a Yeah, I noticed you didn't say powdered version. milk or powdered cream. It's, it's not it's- powdered milk, and it's, it has very little to do with milk or cream. It probably doesn't even have dairy in it, um, but... <laughs> I switched over because um, I was feeling too guilty about drinking the actual Coffee Mate powdered creamer. So I actually ordered this, like, coconut oil creamer that's vegan from the internet. And it's probably just as bad for me. Um, and I probably do about a third. It, actually, no, it's more It's more like 50% creamer, <laughs> a, th- a, a quarter sugar, and a quarter instant coffee.
0: I mean, that and works. Case decaf. If it works, it works, man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What I, kind of tea are you drinking? Uh, at the moment, I'm drinking just a uh, like a turmeric um, and vitamin C sort of. Oh, that's nice. Uh, herbal sort of situation, which is it's okay. It's one of those ones where I don't know how much I like the taste and how how much I like um, just pouring some more. Uh, I don't know how much I like the taste. I don't know how much I like just the fact that it makes me feel vaguely um, uh, yeah. healthy.
1: <laughs> Like you're drinking vitamins, I know, I know. I actually have a, a, I sound like a total fanatic, but I actually have a turmeric-flavored version of my health food powdered creamer. (laughs) And it's kind of (laughs) terrible. Like it feels a little bit, without the other spices that would make it taste like chai, it just sort of reminds me of curry. And, (laughs) but I feel like I'm, you know, it's like, I know it's terrible for me, but it's a little bit like, this is good for me. This is I think a supplement.
0: becoming a grown up is like developing really weird and specific tastes and realizing how much whether something's good or not is how much you expect it to taste like something. So true. And then someone so else true. will try your particular, you know, proprietary mix of disgustingness and just look at you like you're an absolute maniac.
1: <laughs> it's so true. It's so. I just got back from, um, I was in Italy for a month at this residency, which was such an incredible privilege um but it was like a bunch of people a bunch of finicky weird middle-aged artists for a month in this villa in Italy and they they fed us like it was so wonderful but we have very little agency over what and when we ate um and everyone started to go a little bit batshit by the end of it because we wanted all of our weird, crazy mixtures and finicky. You know, everyone there was just like too old to be happy with whatever. Like we all know exactly <laughs> what we like. And so for about a week and a half, two weeks, we were like, this is wonderful. Surprise pasta every night. And then in the second half, we were. I was like smuggling hot sauce in all my pockets and <laughs> scouring the little Italian grocery for instant oatmeal
0: and... Yeah. So I mean, that I sounds incredible. I, I feel like that's what uh, dating in later life must be like. So my mum mm-hmm. my died about uh, six or seven years ago now, and my dad is in his 60s, and there are mm-hmm. a lot of uh, ladies who are sort of circling. And um, <laughs> <laughs> one of the things of my dad being a kind of Burmese Buddhist is he wears a, a longji or like a sarong to bed, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and he met one of these ladies at the door in in a sarong and you could see her clock it think it was a skirt and just go Uh. fine that's fine (laughs) like like, i will accept this level of unusualness excuse me while i make an adjustment i'm good (laughs) and it was just so funny to watch this you know because i was just in the other room just to watch her mental cogs turning of like is this a deal breaker it's not a deal breaker and then also oh he was like oh it's just a burmese laundry and then her being somewhat relieved Uh, But yeah, Yeah. just like at some point you have to figure out where your priorities lie and what's important to you. And it doesn't need to be like, it's an interesting thing. It doesn't need to be a big deal to be a big deal, like hot sauce. Right. right. You know, just a pocket full of hot sauce for you is the thing you need to have to make (laughs) you happy.
1: (laughs) That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be a very strange old person, as I think all of us when we arrived there see i
0: feel like yeah i feel like i'm built to be an old lady you know i i've i was never particularly good at trading on young lady stuff like Mm -hmm. i never was like hot girl or any of that stuff and i just feel like i've got cheekbones and a personality i'm going to be such a powerful old lady that's That's my aim i
1: feel similarly i i had dinner at five o'clock like over an hour ago, so I'm I'm well on my way. I've my nickname when I was in grad school was Grandma.
0: Because That's nice.
1: I I was like it's eight thirty gotta go. It's almost my bedtime. I have my routine. I have my weird dinner I need to make. Um, I'll see you all tomorrow.
0: It's so much better, I think, to be a young person being mocked for behaving like an old person than it is to be an old person being mocked for desperately trying to reclaim your youth. Oh,
1: but for the grace of God, I hope. I mean, I don't think there's much danger of me being... I got all of my young person living out by the time I was 23. So it's been you know, geriatric style since then.
0: I really, I really like that. Have you been wrestling with anything recently? Other than access Uh, to hot sauce, obviously.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, now I'm back in my home, in my, in my haven, where I have like 60 kinds of hot sauce and I put it on everything. So we're all good in that department. Um, You know, I am, uh, I am working on a book, and I would say that's the thing I'm wrestling with. It's giving me hell. I'm a little bit in the weeds at the moment um, in kind of a predictable way, but that doesn't necessarily make it easier. Yeah.
0: So when you say in a predictable way, is this something like this part of your general creative process? You have a bit of time in the weeds or? Yeah. I mean, I don't schedule it, but it, it
1: arrives at about the same time in all of my, you know, very little about the process of writing a book for me is, predictable um, because I sort of have to reinvent the process every time I do it, which is probably why I stay interested in it because it's so damn hard. It would get much easier if if it was the same every time. But there are sort of some emotional stages that come with it that are pretty predictable and near the end of a first draft, which is where I'm at right now, which means that I have gone through sort of a honeymoon phase and I've made all my outlines and my notes and there's been lots of waxing and waning and basically I'm just super fatigued and I'm sick of it and the inspiration well is like it's dry (laughs) so I'm trying to just sort of push through to kind of cross the finish line so that I can set it aside for a few weeks and uh wait for some objectivity to to grow back
0: That's really interesting. How do you plan out the creation of a book? Because I'm always like, I had this thing all my life of feeling like I can't do big projects. I just don't have the sustained effort involved. And then Mm -hmm. during the pandemic, I did um, a podcast that was daily, Mm -hmm. 366 days of that year um, in 2020 and uh, wrote 80 hours of comedy that year. And was like, oh, okay, so I can yeah. do big projects if I have structure, and if, right. importantly and depressingly, if somebody else is waiting for it. Oh, because God, I will always disappoint myself.
1: <laughs> it's so much. It's one of those things, you know, I think when I was younger, I had this fantasy because I was really headstrong and driven and a little bit defiant that I was going to be my own boss and that I was going to be very sort of self driven, self disciplined. But there was just no comparison between the work that I will do on my own and the work that I will do for someone else to please someone else, to keep them from being disappointed. There is like a deadline has a kind of integrity that I just respect like innately. So I feel the same way, but everything you're saying, that's exactly it. And something else that you sort of implied, um, which is the, the dailiness of it, right. Which is that you weren't trying to write, you know, 365 days of you didn't sit down and think i have to write 365 days of comedy right now you thought i have to write one day's worth one podcast's worth right and i think having it broken into increments that are digestible like cognitively okay one of the hardest things about writing a book and the thing that most of like you know my students and mentees get stuck on or give up over sometimes um is that it's impossible to hold a whole book in your mind at once yes there's just too many pages there's too many parts there's too many like levels on which it needs to be integrated and syncopated and so you really can only look at what is right in front of you and then sometimes zoom out and look at you know I do a lot of notes and outlines and I do like sort of visual mapping because I'm a very visual person
0: um Oh man, system cards. Do you have system cards? I use system cards and blue tack, and I paste them when I'm yep. writing a, a solo show, which is the hour-long show. Yep. And it, it is that thing of you don't feel competent if you can't hold the whole of the yep. thing that you're doing in your head, and that's a really mm-hmm. terrible feeling, not feeling competent in what you're doing, but breaking right. it up into those pieces and then holding, being able to hold like the the contents list in your head. I think for me that's is the right. thing. Yeah,
1: that's right. That's exactly it. It feels like um, like something's wrong, like you're doing it wrong, you know? And I think particularly when people are sort of writing their first book or doing their first long project, they don't have the frame of reference. The thing that's easier for me now is not... The process itself isn't easier, and I don't even have less doubts, but I have more reference that this is just how it feels. It feels wrong. It feels crazy. It feels like I'm screw it up it feels like I won't be able to execute it if I can't sort of hold the whole thing in my mind at once Um, but I just sort of keep plugging away day by day and updating my little outline and it just unfolds that way you know you can't create a book the way that people read it in like big luxurious gulps it just doesn't work that way for me
0: I mean that is really I'm currently at almost exactly the same stage except now I have a, a baby that oh. I, I, I've i lost my confidence in my ability to do that kind of behind-the-scenes work, I guess, where when you relax your brain, there's stuff that's happening at the back of your brain, and then suddenly a solution will present itself if you re- if you do that work and then step back. And it feels mm. like now I do the work and then I step into this other role immediately without any kind of interstitial time. So I'm sort of mm. terrified having now mm-hmm. done... I've, I've written sort of the show and I've performed it once, which means it's about a quarter of the way to where I want it to be as a completed yeah. show. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm just terrified that I don't have the... I, I filled in the, the empty room in my head in which the, those elves do the work with the yeah, clutter of, yeah. of, of parenting. I'm sort of slightly worried that it won't work. Um,
1: it makes a lot of sense to me. I think those are fears that all of my friends who have had babies have contended with, but all of them have been able to continue it. And I just think that... Raising a human is the most challenging long-term project anyone could conceive of. Um, I mean, and they're constantly giving you deadlines. So if you can do that, <laughs> then you can finish a, a, a full-length comedy show for sure, I think.
0: Yes, it's, in, it's an interesting thing from the perspective of an outsider looking in at what parenting is um, mm. and thinking, oh, you know, you have to prioritize your work and you have to prioritize yourself and then being presented with this person who has needs and yeah. is being built in building themselves yeah. before your yeah. eyes and the contributions that you make are simultaneously so immediate. She's hungry, mm-hmm. I feed her. She needs mm-hmm. a hug, I hug her. Uh, mm-hmm. And also so inchoate. She won't remember anything that is happening now. None of the things I do mm-hmm. will form memories for her. So what am I doing? What am I building? What am I creating? Mm-hmm. And thinking of it as a, as a form of art. Like what am I... What am I doing, really, and what's the impact that this is having? And the way that I reassure myself when I feel sort of exhausted by it is that I'm building at the moment how she'll feel when she's alone at night.
1: I think that's exactly right. I mean, she doesn't have to remember it for it to shape her, right? You know, I think I have, um, you know, I've written a lot about being an addict and being a sex worker and um I don't know there are some things that I have survived and I've been asked a lot um like how like what made you stop and what made you stay stopped and what made you um what do you think it was that um I don't know, sort of drove you back to safe ground. I'm speaking more about addiction than sex work. Um, and and the thing that I come back to, and it sounds so corny, and I think it's 100% true, is that the way I was a horrible adolescent and teenager, a really hard kid to raise, and I think my mother felt quite hopeless a lot of the time, but she loved me so well and was so consistent and she had many careers while I was a baby and a, and a child but she like put in the time that you're describing and really showed up in that way and there is like this bedrock in me that felt I don't know just like this this deep intrinsic belief that I deserve to live and I think that that's where I got it from
0: yeah so. that that's so interesting <laughs> that, that, that there is a safe place that it can be reached yeah.
1: Yeah, that I just I it's like I have some, my oldest the memories I don't remember are of feeling tended to and feeling cared for and um having life feel like the sustainable thing. So
0: That's really know. that's really interesting. It's
1: theoretical, but
0: I believe <laughs> Well, you, <it. laughs> you you're clearly in like a really stable and good place now. Yeah. When you Talk about these like extreme experiences. As far as like the human spectrum of experiences go, you've kind of gone to the end point on a couple of um, vectors. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. Do you, <laughs> yeah. obviously, those are going to be like really defining of you. Do you ever feel Im- impatient of the ways that they define you? Mm. I think
1: um, not inside myself. And not lately. (laughs) But I think when I was younger, especially earlier in my career, you know, my first book was about being a professional dominatrix and recovering from addiction. And for uh, for some of the years I was writing that book and for the seven years between publishing that book and the next one, that was sort of my calling card um and it's not how i related to myself like those experiences were landmark experiences they were incredibly pivotal you know but but they were just pieces you know um in terms of my self-conception but suddenly there were like thousands of people who it was the only things that they knew about me you know and so the, the amount of time that I spent sort of navigating other people's projections or assumptions or even questions um, and, you know, reading things about me, it felt very much like I was being sort of defined in a particular way. And I had only myself to blame for it. But there was an impatience that I think, an impatience that came with that. Although inside, in the sort of climate just inside myself and my own self-conception, I don't think I'm like never endingly curious about the way my perspective on those experiences changes over time and how they become uh, located differently as my sort of life story progresses
0: that's really interesting i have said that's really interesting really too many times but i think it is I'll take such it. A, i'll take it <laughs> it is such an interesting thing i was a lawyer for a, a year i studied law which took 7 years and then i was a lawyer in a large corporate firm for one year and in my career as a comedian and a public whatever it is that I am um, it's in almost every bio it is in almost every way that I'm introduced it's like she was a lawyer and then she quit and it's it's such Mm -hmm. a small span of my life one year of Mm -hmm. actually working in this place Mm -hmm. and I I think certainly the study shaped the way that I think about the world or the way that I can analyze the world Part of that's dictated by you know any kind of education will shape the way that you approach problems. But Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I don't feel like a a lawyer. I don't even feel like an ex lawyer. I feel like Mm -hmm. being a lawyer was like a little cul-de-sac that I drove down by accident, realised it didn't go anywhere and came back out of. And so that that this idea of kind of constantly being recalled to it, I think Mm -hmm. shaped among other things, I didn't announce I was pregnant until I was eight and a half months pregnant. Wow. Because I just didn't want to deal with yeah. being defined as something. Um, that makes so much sense to me because that's, I was thinking that
1: as you were talking about about your bio and being sort of called back to the fact of being a lawyer or having been a lawyer, and I was like, well, there's so many ways that, that that's done to us and in very gendered ways, and certainly being a woman, being a mother, those are things that people are constantly calling you back to and trying to sort of um you know point to as as the defining characteristic of who you are so that makes a lot of sense to me
0: well people are i mean one of the great things about people is we're constantly telling stories we're constantly situating ourselves in narratives and the things that seem relevant to your narrative from the outside are not necessarily the things that seem relevant Mm -hmm. from the story that you're Mm -hmm. telling yourself I had this little mm-hmm. argument with my dad about um, about gender in fact um, because my little girl is very much a little girl and she you know gives mm-hmm. her books little kisses and mm-hmm. you know, loves loves <laughs> looking at pretty dresses and things like that in a way that mm-hmm. I never really did and dad was saying I'm so glad that you had a child because you used to be like this when you were little it was so obvious you're so nurturing you always you know were playing with babies and everything all of your childhood it was so obvious that you were meant to be a mother and I was like but your nephew two-year-old nephew is constantly also picking up his dollies and feeding them and putting them in a little pram and rolling them around and you're not saying well he was meant to be a mother either or he was meant to you know like that's not (laughs) yeah yeah it's sort of the yeah. exact same behavior of mm-hmm. being loving and nurturing and and all of that, but it's not I mean, I guess if you think about it, you think, oh well maybe he'll grow up to be a a father or a very nurturing person, but it's not yeah. the narrative that's immediately kind of clanked into place.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 very much true. It's funny, um I also feel like I've ended up on sort of the The other side of that. You know, I definitely think that that's been a a sort of defining experience of my kind of public life and social life is sort of being having other people want to define me by one or two repetitive characteristics. But there is this really interesting dynamic that has happened for me as a writer because I write, you know, nonfiction and memoir. And so I often am implicating other people in my stories who I have relationships with and who I know. And it never ceases to surprise me how I can think I am representing the best quality about someone or just some lovely detail. They're making a cameo. And it's impossible to predict what people will be upset by for exactly the reason that we're discussing because I have no idea what their self-portrait looks like inside their mind. So there's no way for me to like make my little portrait and match it to that, right? And the thing that offends people is if it doesn't feel like it reflects them, right? So even if it's positive, they're like, that's not me, (laughs) you know, like you left out the most important part. Um, And so, yeah, I've learned to have a a lot of reverence for um, how people define themselves because we can be, with the best
0: of intentions, get it so, so wrong. (laughs) So, I always anonymize people or ask for their consent if I use them in my shows, mm-hmm. except once. And it was that i <laughs> it was a really annoying, so the the character in the show was an agglomeration of about five guys that I had had interactions mm-hmm. with, five sort of very smart, libertarian, um, slightly non-compassionate. Mm-hmm. Guys who would often argue for things like race based IQ tests and things like that. They just, you know, that was that kind of thing where I had this kind of inherent sympathy with their love of. Things making sense and logic, and that there should be a way to step aside from emotion and really mm-hmm. calculate things, and not be not be ruled by your heart, but be ruled by like reason and logic. And mm-hmm. I have such I, I have such sympathy for how appealing that is as a view of the world. That that's reality, but my own yeah. instinctive sense is that that is that logic is a framework that you put on top mm-hmm. of reality. Reality mm-hmm. exists. No one ever fainted from a syllogism like emotion is real (laughs) if messy and the Mm -hmm. logical framework that you put on it neat and satisfying though it might be is always going to be inadequate and so to allow it to dictate how you react is is incorrect anyway so this is an argument i've had with these five guys variously uh, important in my life over many years Mm -hmm. and it appears in my shows Mm -hmm. in various ways but there was one segment that i did about about this type of guy and three out of the five of these guys are called Dave (laughs) so I call the character in my show Dave and I have had none of them watched the show the year that it was released on Amazon uh none of them watched the show but then about three years after it came out each of them separately watched the show within about six months of each other and sent me essentially the same email of like I thought we were friends (laughs) yep and you've made like a a real caricature of of me and you've made like you've exposed me or you've made me look mean or or, you know like you've been mean about me behind my back Mm -hmm. and I didn't I didn't really know how to reply because it's not them but it's not not them and I don't think I'm misrepresenting them each of the like but but I am partly because I'm using three or four different anecdotes and pretending they're about the same person when they're about yeah. different people, yeah. but that's like, that's for efficiency's sake, and I just don't know. And I've kind of yeah. just <laughs> let the friendships lapse because it's too exhausting to try and explain. Yep. And I don't feel yep. like I should have to justify it either, because you did say, "No, yeah, that, it's not your fault
1: that they have a piss poor argument. <laughs> that's their. That's a them <laughs> problem.
0: But also, you know, <laughs> I don't think Dave is identifiable as a characteristic. Right. Like Dave right. is a, is that, a non-name enough to not mean right. you. Like you, I don't think you're exposed you, by it, you know?
1: That's right. And also there are so many Dave's like that. How on earth would you know which one it is? Like I've written about that guy too and he is also a composite character of multiple Daves that I have known. So there's no way that we could damage their standing in the community.
0: Okay, if you didn't want me to make fun of you, you shouldn't indistingu- have been called indistingu- Dave. <laughs>
1: I've definitely gotten that email many times. Um, Sometimes I have apologized when people get upset um, because sometimes I do. It's like there is a way I can sort of feel when I've been cruel unnecessarily or in a way that sort of violates, like, I don't feel great about it. But that is definitely does not sound like one of those experiences. A lot of the time it ends up being a good sort of litmus test where like, you know, I had an experience recently where a a guy I had been pals with for a really long time, but never very close, you know, um, wrote to me about something that I included in, in, and he was totally unrecognizable, um, and I actually thought that what I wrote was sort of pointed to some nuances about uh, an argument of his and it was pretty generous and I there was no part of me. I didn't show it to him ahead of time as I normally would with a friend because it was like so small and like a non-issue. I didn't even think of it. And then he wrote to me with the sanctimonious email and I thought, you know, if you have so little sense of humor about yourself and take yourself so... I was just like, I I can't even dignify this with a response. So I have definitely let go of some friendships as a result, but I haven't missed them, so...
0: Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a tricky one because one of them was a a, a friendship that I'd had since childhood, but it was a sort of a legacy, Mm. a legacy friendship.
1: Yeah, Um, some people get grandfathered in with their bad arguments and then... It can't it can't always last. I know how that goes.
0: Well he's very useful to me, Dave, because I think of Dave and I think I have two friends who I think of as as in the audience, whenever I'm writing a joke, one of them is a, a non-binary theatre director in New York, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, they are the person who says, "Oh, this isn't in, this is too much, or this joke isn't worth it, or it might hurt somebody's feelings, or you know, have you thought about that turn of phrase, or you know, mm-hmm. if if I say mm-hmm. if I that's if I say that's stupid or lame, then I'm like, oh well, they'd call me up on yeah. that, and is there another way I can put it? So they're in my head, and then also yeah. Dave is in my head, of like. Mm-hmm. Who he wants he's like well, is it funny enough you know like he's the one who's kind of a bit ruthless yep. and th- yeah. these fictional people are the two in my head who I run every joke yeah. past and I hope in, that I can keep them both on board uh, yeah. in yeah. the show because yeah. they're such opposites. that's the
1: Dave that's the Dave uh, that you want to have a relationship to that you want to maintain a relationship to it sounds like actual Dave it's a dead end Imagine- yeah. do you it's have an imaginary audience yeah, I was just thinking about if there are specific people. I definitely um I definitely am thinking of sort of who my ideal reader is. Like I'm imagining the sort of ideal audience less in that way in terms of sort of um the the people who would sort of give me feedback or keep me up to a certain standard, but more um it's usually kind of a younger version of myself. Just like, who's the person who needs this book? Who's the ah. person that it is worth it for me to like bushwhack my way through these weeds to get to the, you know, um, to get to the end of the first draft when it gets hard. And I think like, who's gonna, who needs to hear this? You know, and how can I, and I guess that she does hold me to a good standard because, because it does keep me, Not only going, but also from indulging some of my lesser habits, you know, because I think that person, the person who most needs to read the thing I'm writing, usually needs me to say it straight, needs me to sort of speak clearly and plainly. And I don't like me showing off or being too flourishy or getting distracted. It's like stay on task, say the thing that needs to be said practice humility. Um, She just keeps me, keeps me my best self on the page. But that's more an amalgam or a younger version of myself or um, probably some students or mentees that I've had over the years who needed, you know, like I'm, I'm often sort of writing the book that I would have put in their hands and been like, go read this. It will help you finish the thing you're working on, you know, to see what this person did. And so... Um, Yeah, that's who I picture. And then sometimes, like, just smart friends of mine who I know, um, I just want to write something that they'll love, you know, and so I can't be lazy.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, when you think back, when you write a book, do you ever find that the way you have written overwrites your real memory of the thing? Yeah, I think it's inevitable, you know? Um,
1: but it's not a process that I don't know, I don't I don't grieve it because it happens so slowly. Like the writing process is like a very slow tattooing on the memory. So once it's done, I it's gone. Like whatever's been lost is is truly lost. And so um, and instead what I have is probably a kind of hybrid of um, the way that I sort of narrativized it or in some cases might have embellished it. Um, but those details are are made permanent and sort of other things kind of fall away. Um, it is interesting sometimes I, I will remember something very specific that I didn't think of at the time of writing and there's such a different texture to that to remember something from an experience that I haven't written about where I know when it's fresh you know and when it's something that I've sort of handled a lot and talked about and had to put words to.
0: Yeah it's it's I did a show about memory called uh, Mythos which was about my great grandfather who I never met oh no my my grandfather (laughs) Uh, who I never met my father's father Uh, my daughter's Mm -hmm. uh, Mm great-grandfather, who died when my dad was five. And um, the stories that I know about him and the character that he is in my head is so rich and kind of I have such a strong feeling for who he was. Mm -hmm. And it took me such a long time. And it wasn't until after I'd started performing the show and listening to myself saying it that I realised that there were five stories in the show about him that I was using to talk about masculinity and memory and Mm -hmm, whatever. mm -hmm. And uh, I realised as I said these stories night after night that these are the only stories I know about him. Mm. And that, in fact, those are the only stories my dad knows about him. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that Mm -hmm. the way my dad is, which is sort of extreme benevolent patriarch. Is because mm-hmm. his dad died when he was five and that's what he thinks a dad is, because that's what your dad is when you're five. Mm-hmm. And and that that kind of yeah, filling in the gaps from mm. that was really an an interesting process for me. Just having an insight mm. as a result of something that I was saying. <laughs> does that does that mm-hmm. make sense? Mhm.
1: Mhm. I was like, yeah. Oh, nice. like that. I feel so moved by that, thinking about your dad. And it is interesting, too, how we can, you know, I have a, um, my dad is uh, also someone who was shaped by some very specific memories and by the sort of mythologies of his family. Um, And so there are a lot, I have imagined memories that have shaped me that I inherited from my father too because there were things that it felt so important for him to make sure that I understood that were lessons that came from his childhood which is really difficult um and so I never experienced the things that he sort of gave to me as these kind of parables for living in some ways. Um, but I imagine them so vividly and so incorporated them into like the way that I live and the way that I think about things that um, that they're, they're mine, right? And they're different from his. And I that's something that I've written about and thought about a lot too.
0: That is fascinating because I, I remember reading an article about memory being that PTSD memory is different from other memory Mm -hmm. that most memory is social it's one of the Mm -hmm. reasons why you can't really trust memory because most memory performs the function of of narrative creation and how you fit into the world of the network Mm -hmm. around you and how you fit into other people's stories and how you fit into your own story and that all of that stuff Mm -hmm. memory performs a function which means it's not wildly Mm -hmm. trustworthy which if you're if you're a lawyer you find out very quickly Mm -hmm. that eyewitness Mm -hmm. accounts are (laughs) incredibly unreliable um yeah. and things like, you know, the satanic panic and everything, uh, a oh lot my God. a lot of people yeah. have been convinced into having memories that they don't have. Um or yeah. memory, memories that they do have of experiences that they didn't have, and it's almost impossible yeah. to unpack those memories or unwind them. Yeah. They just start existing. Yeah. Yeah. And PTSD memory is in your body. So there's a mm-hmm. different kind mm-hmm. of it's not social it's personal it's in your bones mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah for my for my last book I read a lot about um somatics and somatic experiencing and sort of how um those kinds of therapists or therapists who practice that kind of treatment work with PTSD memories to sort of um Basically, complete the story of a trauma in the body so that it can kind of release um, the trance of that of that memory and that physical memory.
0: I would like to read that book.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a writer, um, Peter Levine, who is sort of the guy who founded Somatic Experiencing. He has a book called "Waking the Tiger." That's that's really good and interesting and readable. It's like. If you can read it if you're not a clinician.
0: <laughs> this is such a wonderful conversation. I can't keep you for too long, um, but I want people to know where they can find you online, where they can support your work, whether they can buy your books, and also um, if you would be so kind as to give some advice uh, that you think people need to hear. Oh, sure.
1: Um, well, uh, let's see. I'm the author of four books, and... Uh, they are all found at bookstores or online. Um, I always encourage people to shop at their local independent bookstore. That's where I shop. Um, you can shop at my local independent bookstore if you want to order from Prairie Lights in Iowa City in the in the Midwest. Um, and you can find links to everything on my website, which is just melissafibos.com. Um, and some advice. Honestly, I think I'm just going to go back to actually what you said at the very beginning of our conversation, which is just, because I think it applies to everything hard and worth doing, um, which is just that you have to show up for it every day, even when it feels impossible, you know? Just show up and focus on exactly what's in front of you and not try to hold the whole world in your
0: mind at once. Thank you so much uh, for having tea with me. Thank you for having a decaf instant coffee with me, Alice.
1: <laughs> oh, do you know, or oh, do you not? This dolphin mistress that we have got. Elsie Thompson, it is her name. And she helps the dolphins at every frame. Loudly rightful doll, loudly rightful name.